Discipleship of discipleship where? That is the question that's before us this morning. Our scripture passage is uh, focused on what is commonly referred to as the Great Commission. So let's read this together. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We're supposed to go and make disciples. We've talked about this in the previous weeks. As we looked at when do we make disciples, how do we make disciples, what are disciples, of course it only makes logical sense that today we're looking at where do we make disciples. And it starts with that command, go make disciples. If you've been with us for these past few weeks, you know that the responsibility for making disciples is not merely on pastors or missionaries or Sunday school teachers, it's on all of us, every one of us is targeted by Jesus' words given to us prior to his ascent to the right hand of his Father. Go, make disciples. Last week we looked at Ephesians chapter 4, and in there the Apostle Paul writes that Jesus gave gifts to the church. Some of us are apostles, some are uh, pastors, some are teachers, some are evangelists. We discussed how while there is a gift that makes some of us appear to be super evangelists, there really isn't necessarily a gift of evangelism. We all have that. That's all of our responsibility. We all are to evangelize. And just in case you got here late, let me catch you up to speed. We are called as a body of people evangelicals. More often, as a way to categorize us politically, but originally uh, the title of being an evangelical and its original meaning means that we are people who evangelize. It's saying that we take this great commission seriously and it's what identifies us, almost separates us from mainline denominations that historically have not been so excited about individual sharing of the gospel whether that's Presbyterians or Baptists or Methodists or Catholics. Not that nobody does that in those branches of Christianity, but certainly uh, those of us in the what they would once call radical branch of Christianity, the evangelicals, that is how we are identified. Uh, Thomas S. Kidd, in his book um, that just came out on who is an evangelical, actually goes back and he teaches us that the term evangelical refers to those uh, branches of American Christianity that identify as the born-again branch of Christianity. We are born again. Stealing that from John chapter 3, when Nicodemus comes to Christ and says, how can a man be born again? We are supposed to be those people. We are to evangelize. Uh, he, he says that this began in the 1740s, right about the same time as the Great Awakening. Men like George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards were talking to church people. They weren't 
trying to reach out to the pagans, to people who had never heard the message of the gospel. They were talking to church people, and they said there has to be a further step. It's not enough just to attend church and check the boxes that you've given and that you've served and so forth. There has to be that personal relationship with Christ. At some point, you have to understand that you're a sinner and that no matter what you do, no matter how many good works you accomplish, it is never going to be enough to overcome the penalty of your sin. And therefore, we must look to Jesus Christ, that he who came to give his life for a many as a ransom for all is the only way to God the Father. And in this great commission, we are told that is our responsibility. We have to be doing that. Go forward a hundred years from Jonathan Edwards, and we get to another great evangelical by the name of Dwight Moody, uh, operating out of the city <coughs> excuse me, of Chicago. Uh, Dwight's message was pretty similar. I want you to come to Christ. I need you to understand that through our revival meetings, there's an opportunity for you to come forward and to make an indication that you want to have that step of faith happen in your life. It's right on the very name of this church, right? Parkview Evangelical Church. Where did that come from? Are we evangelists? Did we have to take some test at membership that says, oh yeah, that's right, I identify as an evangelist. Well, no, really what happens is that people came to this country from all around the world, but specifically from Scandinavian nations, and they heard the gospel through the ministry of men like Moody, and they gave their life to Christ. It was their hope then to take that message back to their homeland, to Norway, to Sweden, and to share it with those people. You're saying, Dave, you're off on a history lesson. I know, I know, but hang in there with me. When they got, went back home, they had the opportunity to say to those people that were living and going to church in a state-sponsored church, which was common in Europe, you need to come out and you need to respond to this message. We care about you. And their homeland uh, responded all right by putting them in prison. They weren't welcome. And so they came back to this country. And sure enough, they kept on with spreading that word. They took the name to themselves. We're the evangelical church. We're the evangelists. This is our identity. This is who we want to be. It became situated on our denominational title, the evangelical free, in that we didn't belong to a state church, Church of America. And as the local representation of that denomination, Parkview Church is Parkview Evangelical Church. We are evangelists. That's our identity. We have to be about that. Are we? Is this who we really are? Pastor Wade has shared with us that according to some of the surveys that we've taken recently, we're missing the boat. We don't seem to understand that. He gave us that image of uh, the famous two-hump camel, right? Uh, we do a great job on engaging with people, talking to people, being in people's lives. But when it comes to actually sharing the gospel, inviting people into a personal faith with Jesus Christ, we're kind of reluctant. In fact, we indicate on the survey that we find this to be the most difficult part of our Christian walk. I, I don't mind giving. 
I don't mind serving in children's. I don't mind doing uh, visitations. I don't mind going out in the foyer and welcoming people. But when it comes to sharing my faith, boy. And we do a really good job at establishing the second hump, but we go right back down on equipping. How do we evangelize? How do we live up to the name that we have? Well, some might say it's somewhat presumptive of us to have that title in the name of our denomination and in the name of our church, evangelical. Some people have trouble getting over that. I mean, how many of us have actually practiced being evangelicals in this past year? How many people have we shared our faith with? Sometimes we just put all the focus and the strength into making the best church program we can on a Sunday morning. We're well aware of other churches and their prowess in doing this. Oh, they have the best bands and they have really great preachers and they're doing all these things. And, and, and really what we're watching in the greater Iowa City area is people move. They're sheep stealing, as we like to call it. They're moving from Parkview to Grace, from Grace to Veritas, from Veritas, who knows where. And we look at it and we say, what can we do that's better? But the fact is, when we think that way, we're ignoring the truth, which is that probably somewhere between 70 and 80% of our community does not have a personal relationship with Christ. There's plenty of sheep to go around to every church. Every church that calls Jesus Christ Lord and has a focus on him and is a truly evangelical church has no problem finding the raw material, finding the person who needs to hear the gospel. But that's not been our, our practice. Well, you might answer, the title of evangelist is kind of a target. It's where we want to be. It's a goal. We just put the name on everything to remind us of that. But it'd be kind of like, well, let's say a Chicago Cub team member who decides and is successful in changing the name of the Cubbies to the Chicago World Series champions, right? I mean, every hat they print, every t-shirt that is put out there, every jersey, they trot out on the field and it says the Chicago World Series champions. And everybody is cheering. And if you're a Cubby fan, you know, you think this is wonderful. But maybe the rest of the National League will kind of look at that and think, hmm, I don't know about that. I mean, it was an exciting year, 2016, when that happened. That was just so wonderful. But you might want to ask that person, what brought you to put that on your shirts? And they would be like, well, thanks for asking. Uh, we just decided to put our goals for our team directly on our paraphernalia so that we never lost sight of it. And I think that we deserve to do so. Really? And why do you think you deserve that? Well, because that's who we are. We're the World Series champions. Yeah, that's been several years ago now. Yeah, but it's like the president. Once you're president, you're always called Mr. President. And we choose to be always called the World Series champions. So, nah, I don't think that's going to work. Well, you know, you can argue about that back and forth. But the truth is, most of the world would look at that and say, there's something wrong with such a title. Uh, you haven't been there more than once in 100 years. How in the world would you dare to do that? I think that the world could ask us the same question. Why do we have evangelical written on our walls, on our paraphernalia, on our shirts? 
Well, I did share my faith. I remember back in 1974, I had an opportunity to talk to my roommate in college and I shared my faith and it was a glorious thing. And how many times have you done it since then? Hmm. Well, I, I think that we had a good time sharing our faith uh, uh, just a couple years ago and, and we're just constantly thinking in the past. It's presumptive to have such a title if we're not going to live it. See, this book that we're supposed to be reading right now as a church, this one, if you've been to any of the training nights that Thomas is leading, Pastor Thomas, How to Talk About Jesus Without Being That Guy. Good book. You know, it's another book amongst many that gives us a method of how to share our faith. <coughs> our hope is that in so doing, we're reading about a method that works with this particular generation. And indicative of that is the fact that the Ford, written by Dr. Ed Stetzer, a well-recognized pastor, church leader, uh, says that we have a problem, something that needs addressed in the evangelical world. And that problem is that our most popular form of evangelism, the one that most of us participate in, uh, most likely would do without hesitation, is what he calls church evangelism. Church evangelism is when we take the opportunity to ask that special person in our life, you know, whether that's a friend, a coworker, a family member, and we say, hey, come to church. I want you to come to church. The hope is that once they get in the doors, that's the hard part. From there, the professionals take over. The worship band, the pastor, the special speaker, whoever's up front. And we're just hoping that this will be a morning in which the gospel is presented. People understand that on your own, you can't get to God. You're a sinner. You need grace in your life. And then they explain that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and so forth. Church evangelism. For the last 50 to 60 years, Stetzer says, this has been the preferred method of almost all evangelical Christians. I used to do this with my youth group. I used to talk them in and say, hey, you just bring them in the door and I'll share the gospel. I thought, these guys are ninth graders, 10th graders. This is a lot of burden for them to carry to understand how to share their faith one-on-one. -on -one. So I'll do it for them. But is that biblical? Is that what we see Jesus doing? Here's the problem Stetzer says that we're all facing as evangelicals, and he is predicting that if we don't break out of this cycle, this method, that we're going to see the numbers of Christians in this country continue to descend, to go down. Because the truth is that this generation is less likely to respond to an invitation to come to church than any previous generation in this country's history. Uh, the church is no longer viewed as a place of safety, of hope, of inspiration. The church is a place of bias and bigotry and hatred. Why would I want to go there? Are you kidding me? You just revealed to me that you belong to a church? Forget the title evangelical. It doesn't even really matter. Whatever church it is, I have nothing to do with it. I want nothing to do with it. So this method of evangelism may probably go the way of the dinosaur. Just not going to happen. Well, we're always going to have some people that come in, no doubt. Uh, probably older people, to be honest. People who are looking for truth, 
for an answer, for fellowship, for whatever reason. And we'll, as a pastoral team, continue to present the gospel from time to time. That's just part of what we do as we preach. But actually hitting the people that we're targeting, probably we're going to do a hit and miss, right? They're not going to be here. The people who need to hear it most are not going to come in these doors. So what do we do? How do we address this? What do we do about those people that are lost? If they're not coming to us, a come and see approach, then we have no choice but to switch to a go and tell approach. Go and tell. Well, this should drive us back to the New Testament. In fact, it does. And what I want to do is look at a couple of examples we see from our Lord. Jesus was the master evangelist, no doubt. He knew how to reach the people in his community. He did not ever use, uh, stand in a synagogue and say, come, come. He went out to where they lived. He found them. And we see this in a couple of different places in Scripture. If we look at John chapter 4, where you read the story of the woman of Samaria. Now, Samaria, many of you know, if you uh, remember that in a study, was that region between Galilee and Judea. They were hostile to the Jews, and the Jews were hostile to them. They wanted nothing to do with them. Now, back in the day, I can remember uh, as a college student, uh, I had to go to Texas for some reason. And in those days, and it's been a long time, Nebraska and Oklahoma were big rivals in football. And I remember saying to my friends, let's not go through the state of Oklahoma. Let's go around. And we got a map out and we're like, this is not possible. We don't want to do this. This is going to take us hours and hours out of our way. So I kind of had the attitude that I was going to get to the border of Kansas, Oklahoma, and then we're just going to gun it, go right down 35, you know, get through that state. I didn't really know what to expect, but I had no good thoughts about them. And then when I got to Texas crossing the Red River, I was going to celebrate. Ooh! That's kind of the way this was with Samaria. People didn't want to be in Samaria. There's nothing good that can come from there. Jews avoided it. They did exactly what I was talking about. They would travel around, they would cross the Jordan and go all the way down and around back to Judea, coming back across the Jordan. Jesus had good reasons why he told the parable of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan was a kind man, was a person that looked to the man who had been beaten and robbed with sympathy and with love. And that man who was a Jew would under normal circumstances have never accepted assistance from this person. But because he was in dire need, he did. Great story. At another point in Luke chapter 9, we see two of Jesus' 12 apostles, James and John, saying, uh, Master, should we just call down fire and brimstone on Samaria? Like Sodom and Gomorrah? We can do that, right? And Jesus is like, oh, guys, you're missing the message. You're missing my point. So by the time we get to John 4, and we see this little thing happening with this woman, we read this. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. She's on her daily chore responsibilities. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? 
for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying this to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you what? Living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, in other words, from this well, will be thirsty again. You'll just be right back here tomorrow getting more water. But whoever drinks of the water that I'm going to give them will never be thirsty again. That water that I give them will become to him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is practicing being an evangelical. He's living up to the name. He's sharing what he believes and how to get to the Father with this woman. He didn't wait for her to come to him. He went to her. And despite the fact that his followers, his disciples, his church people, were like, oh, are you crazy? You can't go in there. We don't do that. Jesus went anyway. And I love in verse 25, the woman says to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her very simply, I who speak to you am he. Shockwaves probably went through her soul. Are you serious? Not only are you claiming to be the Messiah, but you've come to Samaria. You've come to me. And if you know the story, you know that this is not a woman who deserved the gospel. She was a woman living in flagrant sin. In your sphere of influence, who would you identify as most needing the gospel? Are you willing to go to them? My brother Dean was fishing like he loves to do on a Saturday morning on his day off at Easter Lake in Des Moines. And as he's casting his bait into the lake, trying to catch a fish, he notices off to his left two young Asian students. They have clipboards and pens, and they're making notes, and they're staring at my brother. And he's like, what is going on? Well, whatever it is, I'm sure they'll be gone in a second. And so he just keeps on fishing, and as he does, he walks along the bank, you know, making progress. If nothing is biting here, maybe it's biting 10 feet down. But when he looks around, those men are not only still there, they've closed the gap. They're obviously following him. It really made him kind of nervous. So finally, he just put down his rod, and he walked over to them and says, can I help you guys with something? Well, it turns out they're two Chinese students who are going to Iowa State University, um, and they are doing studies on Iowa's lakes and rivers. And my brother had an opportunity to sit down with them right there on the bank and kind of explain to him what he was doing by fishing. And he said after a while, would you like to hear the story of the greatest fisherman that I know? And they were very eager. Yes, yes, yes. And Dean got the opportunity to share the story of Jesus Christ with them. Tell, him, tell them about the Messiah. I don't know what happened, what was the end result, but I do know they heard the gospel that day. Go and tell. 
Go and tell. Jesus shows up in Samaria. He finds a woman doing her normal chores. And he tells her that he is the one. I, the one that you are talking to, am he. Let's take another look in the Gospel of Matthew. I'm reading, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. They were all eating together and having a great time. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. The implication is they're sick. These tax collectors... They need to hear the gospel. That's why I'm with them. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, he's quoting the Old Testament, and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I love this picture. These Pharisees, these church people, they've been kind of suspicious of what Jesus has been up to. And now they hear that he's in the home of a tax collector. And not just one, but several. And they gather And they stand looking in the window, and they can hear the party going on. And they're not hoping to get an invite in. They're hoping to hear that Jesus is holy enough to recognize that he's in a bad place and he needs to come out. And Jesus resists them. Jesus gives them his rationale as to why he's in there. I've come because I'm a physician and they are sick. Who in your life needs to hear the message? Who in your life is someone that you need to go and live in their world? When I lived in Nebraska, my favorite thing to do was go and hang out with farmers, ranchers that needed Christ. And often I would ask them, can I just ride in the combine with you, especially this time of year when harvest is on? Because there's no one else out there with them in the middle of the night. A lot of those guys go 24-7. What a great time take an opportunity to be in their life, to share the gospel. You say, well, I don't know how to do that. I've never had training in how to do that. Ta-da! I think we have plenty of these books sitting outside if that's your only problem, but I think you and I know that isn't the main problem. The main problem is the fact that we just, we're frightened. We're scared. We like the title evangelical. We're just not sure that we're willing to pay the cost to actually be evangelicals. When I began this message, I was planning on answering the question of discipleship where? With the answer, wherever. Yeah, that sounded good, wherever I am. But the truth is, that in and of itself can really be non-committal. The real answer is, theologically, where you are. Drop the ever. Where do I do discipleship? (laughs) Where you are. That's where I do it. God in his sovereignty and his grace has put you in a place with different people that need to hear the message. Put you there. Not me. Not anybody on this platform. Nobody that you can listen to on the radio or on a podcast. 
did I say radio? Sorry. On a podcast, it's you. Even if you do a horrible job. I can't tell you how many times I've been with people and I've heard them share the gospel. And inside, theologically, I'm just wincing, going, oh, no, no, no. But you know, when we get to the end, I've seen those same people have the privilege of leading their friends to Christ. We don't have to be theologians to do this. We don't have to be super Christians to do this. We just have to be obedient. Discipleship, where? Right where you are. I trust God. I trust him with all my heart. I think of Paul being in Greece and standing up in Acts chapter 17 on Mars Hill and having the opportunity to address those philosophers who else would have done that in his day? Not the fishermen from Galilee. These guys were used to casting nets. These guys were considered blue-collar workers. That wasn't their realm, but it was Paul's, a highly trained, highly educated person, philosophical in his own rights, a genius by all regards. That was his sphere. Where's your sphere? working out at the gym, going to work in the morning, stopping at coffee shop, wherever it is, ask the Lord, am I where I need to be and who in here needs to hear the word? I want to share that gospel. I'm going to end this morning with just a little bit of a kind of a help, a prompt on how to think about this. And I love it. But uh, where would I make disciples? It's a great question. Here's my answer. I'm going to share my faith in a box. I'm going to share my faith with a fox. I'm going to share my faith in a house. I'll even share my faith with a mouse. I'll share my faith here and there. I'm going to share my faith everywhere. I love to share the gospel. Yes, I do. I love to share the gospel with all the who's. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your gospel message this morning. I praise you, Father, for the opportunity, the challenge that we have. May we have the courage, Father, to live up to the name that you've given us, evangelicals. May we be that church. May we be that people. Father, help us and be obedient and to walk out of here with excitement at the opportunities that we have. In Jesus' name, amen.